Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A Closer Look True Crime Podcast, or welcome if you are new. Today, we have a very interesting case like no other I've previously covered, and that is the case of Natasha Ryan. It is a Australian case, but it at one point was being covered by media all over the world and was very internationally well-known, which is quite rare, especially for like English and Australian cases that are so far away from North America. However, within this case, there are also a few other crimes that were believed to be linked to Natasha's that I will be talking about, and I won't be getting super deep into those because they're not what we're talking about today. That could be a whole other episode in itself, but I'll just be kind of grazing the surface of these cases, and if you want to look more into them, I encourage you to do that. But without further ado, let's get right into this week's episode. Natasha Ann Ryan was born on May 9, 1984 in Rockhampton, Queensland, Australia, to her parents Robert and Jenny Ryan. Rockhampton was a pretty small town with a population of about 75,000 people, and I feel like I say this every single week, but it was considered to be extremely safe and had a very low crime rate. Natasha grew up with a younger brother named Chris and an older sister named Donna, and Natasha had been described as a very sweet, generous girl. Eventually, Jenny and Robert decided to get a divorce, and shortly after, Robert got remarried to a woman named Debbie and moved about three hours away from Rockhampton. Natasha really struggled with her parents' divorce as she headed into her teenage years, and it just kept getting more and more difficult for her as time passed. Her best friend throughout her teenage years was a boy named Mayoha Tokatawa, which I'm really sorry if I pronounced that wrong. I have no idea how to pronounce that, and there's not very many clips of anyone saying his name, but if you're wondering how it's spelled, it's M-A-I-O-H-A. That's the first name, and the last name is T-O-K-O-T-A-U-A. He had moved to Australia from New Zealand shortly before they became friends, and they were getting really close. So fast forward to 1998, Natasha was 14 years old. She absolutely hated high school. She had been suspended in the past, was going down a bad path with experimenting with drugs, and even had an unapproved 21-year-old boyfriend named Scott Black, who helped her run away in the past. Obviously, this seven-year age difference is very concerning for someone so young, and it was definitely illegal. Natasha had also been dealing with a lot of mental health issues at the time and even had attempted suicide before. Natasha and Jenny also had a very rocky relationship around this time and would argue a lot about her behavior, Scott, her grades, everything like that. So obviously she was going through a lot and was really starting to rebel away from her mother. Then on Monday, August 31st, it was a typical school day. Jenny dropped Natasha off at school. Natasha told Jenny she loved her and walked towards the school as Jenny drove off. However, Natasha never made it to any of her classes that day, and when Jenny showed up at the school at the end of the day to pick Natasha up, she was nowhere to be found. Jenny thought that maybe Natasha had decided to walk home with some friends, so she drove back home, and when Natasha wasn't waiting for her at home, Jenny decided to call the police to report her missing. Initially, because of Natasha's past runaways, the police and Jenny didn't believe Natasha was in any danger or any foul play was involved in her disappearance, but when they found out that Natasha wasn't at Scott's house and he had claimed he hadn't seen her all day and nobody had heard from her all day, they started to believe that something more sinister was likely behind her disappearance. 
Police launched multiple searches for Natasha, spoke with friends, family, and most of all, Scott. Scott claimed he hadn't heard from her all day and claimed he had no idea where she could be. A witness eventually came forward and said that they believed they had seen somebody who matched Natasha's description outside of a local movie theater talking to an unidentified older man that morning. Her best friend had also been the last person to see her at school alive, so he immediately became a person of interest and was even arrested for her disappearance at one point. However, he was eventually released because of lack of evidence. Throughout the next months, fear began to grow in the community as several more girls around Natasha's age had disappeared in a similar way from the same area. In December of 1998, 39-year-old Julie Turner mysteriously disappeared without a trace. Then the following March, 36-year-old Beverly Lego disappeared as well. At this point, police started to think that the three girls' cases might have been connected and they may be dealing with a serial killer because in an area like this, it would be very weird to have three very similarly aged women disappear in seven months. Then, only a month after Beverly's disappearance, another girl went missing. However, this time it was a nine-year-old girl named Kira Steinhardt. She had actually turned nine very recently, and when she was turning nine, she gained the new responsibility of walking home alone. And on April 22, 1999, she was walking home alone for the second time in her life. She decided to take a shortcut through a vacant lot when she was suddenly struck on the back of the head and loaded into the perpetrator's trunk. And this entire assault was witnessed by a nearby resident, but for some reason, they waited a whole 20 minutes to phone police and report the crime. It's very unclear what the reasoning behind waiting this long was, but regardless, somebody did see it and was able to provide a description of the perpetrator. They said that he was wearing a white shirt, bright yellow shorts, was middle-aged, and drove a red car. This description was released to the public, and only a few days later, a man came forward and said that this man that they were talking about was 49-year-old Leonard Fraser. And interestingly enough, a police officer had actually seen Leonard driving around that day, except that he didn't know him as Leonard Fraser, and instead knew him as the recently released Rockhampton rapist, who had previously spent almost 20 years in prison. After this tip from the man, they searched Leonard's house and possessions and found traces of Kira's blood in the trunk of his car. He was eventually arrested and charged for her abduction, but before this happened and he was behind bars, another girl, 19-year-old Sylvia Benedetti, went missing. As time went on, police started finding more and more connections between Leonard and all the missing girls, as well as connections between all the different cases. They found out Leonard was acquaintances with Sylvia, had worked with Julie, and lived across the street from Beverly. Jenny had also picked Leonard out of a lineup as a man that she had frequently seen at the same bowling alley Natasha liked to visit often, and some witnesses had said that they had seen the two talk before, and with all this new information, police were really starting to be able to build a serial killer case against Leonard. Leonard's girlfriend also came forward around this time and said that on the day of Kira's disappearance, he had disappeared from the house for a few hours, and when he came back, he was in different clothing than when he left, and he had asked her if she wanted to go for a car ride. She agreed, and they drove basically to the middle of nowhere. She saw Leonard take a rag-like... She saw Leonard take a very limp 
ragdoll-like figure out of the trunk, walk into the bush, and come back empty-handed a few minutes later. And when Leonard got back in the car and she asked him, what was that? Like, what happened? What was that thing you were carrying? He told her that if she ever told anyone about this car ride, he would kill her. So she kept her mouth shut because, obviously, she believed that he had killed whoever he was taking out to the forest, so she wasn't going to assume he was bluffing about killing her as well. Eventually, police were able to get Leonard to tell them where Kira's body was, and shortly after, he was charged with her abduction and murder. He was later found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Then, while he was in prison, he confessed to killing a few other women in the area to a fellow inmate, and this inmate named Alan Quinn obviously told police what Leonard had said to him, because sometimes in jail, when you tell on other inmates or like share information instead of hiding it you can get more benefits and be rewarded for this behavior and it just is the morally right thing to do and one of the killings that he did confess to was Natasha Ryan's Leonard said he knew Natasha well and that she had even been pregnant with his child at this time he also confessed to Julia and Beverly's disappearances and Sylvia's murder which was confirmed as her body had already been found After finding this out, police decided to try and make a deal with Leonard, and the deal they decided on was if he told them where the bodies were, then they would move him to a more secure, safer prison to protect him from other inmates because even other criminals hate child killers and serial killers. So Leonard obviously took the deal and correctly told police where the bodies of Beverly and Julie were. However, he said he couldn't tell police where Natasha's was. Luckily, though, even without finding Natasha's body, they were able to charge him with her murder as a witness claimed they had seen them together and some jewelry that was found in his home Jenny believed belonged to Natasha. The trial began three years later in 2003, and only a few days into the trial, a shocking statement was made by prosecutor Paul Rutledge. He said that Leonard wasn't guilty of Natasha's murder because she had been found alive and safe just the day before. Natasha's father was so shocked that he almost passed out and Jenny was obviously extremely shocked as well. Jenny also said that she felt very hurt initially that Natasha had caused them and the rest of their family so much pain over the past few years and this discovery also put a huge cloud of doubt over the rest of the case because Leonard had falsely confessed to Natasha's murders so what's to say he didn't falsely confess to the others however they were obviously eventually able to clarify that he had committed the other murders because there was a lot of actual evidence against him, including the fact that he knew exactly where the bodies were. That would be a very hard thing to guess. But before we talk about the rest of the trial, I would like to talk about where Natasha had been for the last five years. So Natasha had actually been at her boyfriend Scott's house the entire time, completely by her own will. From the moment she was found, she made it very clear that this was completely her idea and that Scott had only agreed to help. Scott and Natasha did live in Rockhampton for the first little while before Scott got a job transfer and the two moved to another town about 45 minutes away. Then Scott eventually got transferred back to Rockhampton where the two lived only five minutes from Jenny's house and Natasha's childhood home. Natasha had only left the house a handful of times while in hiding and said that she had even learned to sew her own clothes and make her own sanitary pads because if Scott was seen buying them, it would be very suspicious. 
In her free time, she tried to teach herself German, continued to educate herself, and worked out in their home gym. Throughout the day, she would stay inside with the curtains drawn, and if visitors ever came, she would hide in this cupboard in Scott's room where police later found her on April 10th, which I will talk about in just a moment. And this is where she got the name of the girl in the cupboard, or the cupboard girl. Natasha claims that she did want to return home one day, but as time passed and the lie got bigger, it felt harder and harder to go back. A few weeks before being found, Natasha found out that Leonard was being charged with her murder, and she immediately panicked, obviously. She had no idea what to do and how she was going to reveal herself, so she called in anonymously to the kids' helpline and told them that she was a teenage runaway and someone was going to be falsely charged with her murder. Then shortly after, police received an anonymous tip that Natasha may be living with Scott and decided to pay Scott's house a visit. Natasha hadn't said that she was the one to tip off her location, but a lot of people believe it was her because how would they know And after all this time? Like, how would somebody not tip them off before, but as soon as Natasha was starting to panic, they got tipped off? So on April 10th, police visited Scott. He seemed very nervous and only got more nervous as they went into his bedroom and started looking through his cupboards. And in one of the largest cupboards, they opened it up and found Natasha huddled up in a ball, alive and perfectly fine. Like I said, Natasha immediately made it clear that she had chosen to stay with Scott and that he hadn't abducted her, but unfortunately, they were both still committing a crime by staying at Scott's and pretending to be dead and then Scott keeping her there and not telling everyone, which we will talk more about how that played out in court in just a moment. Police called Jenny to tell her that they found Natasha, and obviously Jenny assumed that they meant that they found her remains, as somebody was being charged for her murder, and when they told her that they found Natasha alive and perfectly healthy, she did not believe them, and she only actually believed them when she saw Natasha in person. Natasha said that she will never reveal publicly why she wanted to run away, and has only said, I just felt angry at everybody and everything, in an interview. And if you remember me mentioning, she had tried to commit suicide before and was believed to be in a really horrible place mentally. And sometimes life is just too much for some people, especially after her parents' divorce, she was really struggling. And so running away or ending their life just seems like the only choice they have. And I feel like, especially since Natasha was so young, she was 14 years old at the time, and I just don't think that she was able to think rationally about this and get the help that she needed. So Scott and Natasha were obviously in the wrong and would have to face consequences of some type. They had cost the government and the taxpayers around half a million dollars in resources and search efforts, and Natasha was only given a $1,000 fine, whereas Scott not only received a three-year jail sentence for perjury, which is basically just lying, but he was also charged with $16,000. And I don't know if he was charged more because Natasha was a minor when she decided to run away and Scott was the adult in the situation, but this just seems so wrong to me. I do not think that Scott should have faced any larger consequences than Natasha. I believe that they both should have faced consequences, but I did not, I did not expect them to be like this. Like, I never expected Scott to face way more than Natasha. Natasha only had to pay a thousand dollars. Scott not only had to serve time in prison, but he had to pay a 
huge sum of money. And from what I can gather, a lot of the media and the public had the same feelings as me and believed that especially since Natasha was receiving a lot of money from all the interviews that she was doing and all the media coverage, she should have gotten a harsher sentence or at least have to pay more than $1,000. Like, it just seems really, really wrong. So as I said, everyone was obviously shocked by the news. This case was making international headlines and Natasha even had to hire a celebrity agent to deal with press and media requests. Natasha ended up making a lot of money from sharing her story and was followed around by the press for years. Natasha decided to attend her own murder trial against Leonard and confirmed that she didn't know, never spoke to him before, and that all the witnesses had been mistaken in her knowing and being seen with Leonard in the past. Leonard was found guilty on all counts and received three life sentences on top of the one he was currently serving for Kira's murder. Then, four years after the trial, he passed away due to a heart attack in jail. Natasha and Scott are still together almost 30 years later. When they got married, they sold their wedding photos to the press for hundreds of thousands of dollars, which seemed a little bit weird to me, but I guess... If you can, why wouldn't you? They ended up having four children and moved to a smaller town a few miles away from Rockhampton. Jenny also moved to this town so she could help out with the kids and stay close to Natasha. Natasha ended up going into nursing and tried her best to avoid the spotlight, and since then, I think that she's just been living a pretty normal life. Anyways, I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed creating it for you all. Make sure to check out my Instagram. The link is in the description. I have a dedicated post to this case. Please comment. Let me know what you thought of this episode on that post. Let me know your thoughts on this case. Let me know if you thought that everyone's sentences were fair because I definitely think that I would have done it differently. And I hope to see you next Monday on another episode of A Closer Look True Crime Podcast.